Where is God when your life is a mess? Does he even care about the things that you're going through? What are you supposed to do when the bottom falls out, when, when the dream dies, when things just fall apart? Do you ever ask those questions in a time of pain? I'm sure many of you have. Well, today we're starting a new series that hopefully will allow us to begin finding some answers to some of those very heavy questions. We're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Ruth, and it works out perfectly because the book of Ruth is four chapters long, and we have four weeks in this series. So we're going to spend uh, one week each each, uh, week of this month looking at a different chapter in the book of Ruth. Now, at first glance, if you, if you know the book of Ruth, you may think this is a, kind of an odd place to find answers to those massive existential questions, because what is it? It's this, this tiny little love story that barely mentions God's involvement at all. But trust me, the book has a lot to say about these topics, and so we're going to dig into it. Before we open up our Bibles, though, I just want to I want to start by kind of first setting up the high-level narrative of the story. I do have to spoil the ending here. If you were hoping to get to week four and finally find out what happens, I'm going to spoil it right now. You kind of have to know the whole story to be able to understand, uh, you know, what this is all about. So let me just give you the basic beats of this story. And by the way, if you want to read it yourself, it's real short. You could probably do it in five or ten minutes. I heard someone said that they were so intrigued that after halfway through the message, they just read the rest of the book while they were sitting there. So it's doable. You can do that. Um, So here's the basic story. It follows uh, specifically this woman named Naomi and her family. Naomi was an Israelite living in Bethlehem, and there was a huge famine in the land. So she and her husband and their, their two boys, they move and become economic refugees in another country called Moab. They go across the border and they settle in that new place. But things in Moab go terribly for Naomi because her husband dies and then her two sons die. And she ends up coming back to Bethlehem as this, this uh, broken, grieving widow, and the only person that she has with her is her daughter-in-law, who is also now a widow, named Ruth. Well, they get into Bethlehem, and um, they meet this man named Boaz, who is a farmer. He's a, he's a landowner, and Boaz is really generous with Ruth and Naomi. He looks after her, after them, and uh, takes care of their needs, and one thing leads to another, and Ruth ends up marrying Boaz, and they have a son together. They have a baby, and so the, the story ends with Naomi, this once grieving widow, holding her, her baby grandson in her arms. It's a beautiful, happy ending, but there's a big twist. And this is how the book kind of drops this on you at the end. The big twist is that this little baby was actually, went on to become the grandfather of King David, the the king of Israel. So all of a sudden at the end we find out, oh, this whole time, that baby, this family, this is King David's ancestors, his family, which is incredible. So, and by the way, we know because of, of the, the New Testament, that King David is one of the ancestors of Jesus. So this little baby was actually an ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. So wow, what a happy ending, right? So that's the story of Ruth. That's the, the, the big picture. But we're going to look each week at different elements of this story and what it teaches us today. So before we dive into chapter one and, and kind of by way of introing the whole series, let's talk a little bit about the world behind the text. You know I love to do that. I want to talk about what was this book for? Why was it written? Who was it written to? When was it written? Let's, let's talk about that briefly. Now, this 
I find very fascinating, but there are essentially two big schools of thought about why Ruth is Ruth, why it's in our Bibles. And they're very different. And so I'm going to kind of introduce these two schools of thought to you. School of thought number one it suggests that this book was written around 1000 BC, around the time of the reign of King David. And in this theory, this book was written as a kind of as a form of, of mild propaganda, like a good, a good kind of propaganda to, to essentially say that, look, King David, he's the rightful king of Israel because this story uses themes from, from other Old Testament stories. There's, there's, you know, the childless old, old lady with no hope for the future who finds her, herself uh, with a baby. Like that, that's very much Genesis, Abraham and Sarah, all of that. Um, there, there's also this general sense of like God was working even generations in the, pa in the past to make sure that King David could be who he was. And so the basic theory is that this book was written as a way of saying, look, obviously God really wants King David on the throne. Okay, that's theory one. Theory two is that the book was written about 600 years after all of that, that it was written around 400 BC during a, a time that was in Israel after the Babylonian exile. So the basic idea, there's, all, there's other books in the Old Testament like Ezra and Nehemiah that talk about that period, and they, are very, they have a very specific opinion, these authors, about foreign women, foreign wives, and, and they're very much focused on uh, not the Israel men should not be marrying foreign wives and they should be very, it's kind of like being, we, we need to purify Israel and make it just for the Israelites, that kind of thing. Now that's in Ezra and Nehemiah. And this theory would say that Ruth was a part of, of the, the people of God responding to that and, and essentially pushing back a bit on that, that idea of ethnic purity. They're basically saying that Ruth was written to say, guys, are you forgetting King David's own like great-grandmother was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. Obviously, God does not want to exclude foreigners from Israel. He wants to draw them in. That's this theory. So in this theory, there's a little bit of intercanonical tension, which I find fascinating because it's really, really, uh, it's exciting to see how the people of God are wrestling with these deep truths. But basically, those are the two theories. 1000 BC, 400 BC. Propaganda, uh, uh, opening our minds to foreign women, whatever. Okay, those are the two theories. So which one is it? Which, which is the real reason why Ruth was written? I don't know. I don't know, and I can't tell you, and nobody knows for sure. Unfortunately, that has been lost to history. We just don't know exactly which of these two reasons uh, was the reason that Ruth was written. However, however, we can be confident of one thing for sure. The book of Ruth was meant to be read and enjoyed by the people of God. You see, the book is written in such a way that it instructs, it teaches, it unveils God's heart, but it does it in a very entertaining way. It is like, it's often referred to as a novella. It's like literature because this book is full of uh, plot tensions and, and resolutions and there's artistic wordplay and poetry and, and it's literature. It's literature. And like all good literature, it invites us in. It invites us in to the story. So we don't know exactly what the, the objective was of this book being written, but we know that it was designed for us to learn while enjoying the process. Okay? 
Now, one little caveat, just before we, we we're going to get to Ruth here in just a second, but I want to set some clear expectations here. Because even though I just referred to it as a novella, and you're thinking, oh, cool, plot conflict and resolution, that sounds really exciting. It is. However, this book is very old, and it's very foreign, all right? And it's like a foreign artifact. And by that, I mean there are a lot of cultural nuances and ideas in this book that just are absolutely foreign to our experience. For example, there's this whole plot theme about how Ruth marries this guy and has a baby with him for her mother-in-law's benefit, right? Like how many people today would drive their mother-in-law to the airport without grumbling, right? That's the, this is a foreign concept. I would, mom, I would totally drive you to the airport and I would be so happy about it. Uh, but but you, th this idea of like making these massive life cho changes for your mother-in-law is that's odd. Um, but there's also these weird customs, like uh, there's this scene where Ruth basically is hitting on Boaz by uncovering his feet while he's sleeping. Totally normal, right? What a normal thing to do. That must have been the ancient version of dating apps or something. I don't know. That's weird. Uh, uh, that's different. And then there's this thing where someone seals a, a contract, uh, seals a deal by handing this other guy his sandal. And it's like, yeah, that's, that sounds right, I guess. I don't know. Or there's this thing, I'm, we're not going to get into it this week, but just to give you one final example. There's something in the book of Ruth called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. And this is basically a person, it's Boaz, who's the kinsman redeemer, but it's basically a person who is legally obligated to restore ownership of lost property to his extended family. So, you know, like that, like that kind of thing, which, what is that? I, I don't even know. I'm not, we're not even going to get into it today. But that's what I'm trying to say. This book is very foreign. It's very old. It's got some weird customs. And it may strike us as a little bit odd at times. However, however, the themes that this book covers are universal. The themes, the ideas that we see coming up in this story are the same things that we deal with in our modern world. Themes like putting food on the table. How are you going to do that? Like marriage and children and love. Themes like family and faith. I mean, th these are universal themes. So even though this book has some weird customs, when we see Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, we realize they are people just like us. And their story has a lot to teach us still. All right, let's open up our Bibles. Let's look at Ruth chapter 1. It's going to be page uh, 225 in the House Bibles in the seat in front of you, or of course you can use uh, your own Bible. Uh, while you're turning there, I'm just going to pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Well, Father God, <coughs> thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity for us to listen to your voice through the book of Ruth. I pray that as we, as we turn our attention to your word, as we listen for your voice, that you would speak clearly uh, and that we would hear exactly what it is that you have for us. As I'm preaching, I ask that I would simply disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain. I pray that we would have ears to hear uh, what you have to say for us this morning. And of course, Father, for any of us who've been, who've been looking at the news, our hearts are heavy with what is going on in Israel and the Gaza Strip, and so we pray for peace, peace, in that situation? Would you move in a, in a major way to heal that brokenness? We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So let's begin the book of Ruth. It starts like this. Book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. Now, before we go on, let's just take a second because it's easy to zip by this and think, okay, yep, we're setting up the plot. Let's, let's move on. Just take a second and imagine what it was like for Naomi and, and her husband to uproot everything. They're landowning Israelites, and now they're suddenly being, being uh, taken to some, they're moving to some country far from home, and they're hoping they're going to land on their feet. This is, this is a big deal. They are now refugees, asylum seekers, and they've got two boys, two kids in tow. Okay, so I, I think it's important just to pay attention to their plight. This is not easy. Imagine what it would be like if you had to uproot everything in your life and, and travel to some far-off country. Well, actually, I say that, and I know that there are a number of you who don't have to imagine because that's exactly what you're experiencing right now. You've come from a place that was your home, and now you're here. And so this is, this is a plight that is not—it's uh, it's worth paying attention to because Naomi uh, is in a difficult, difficult spot. Unfortunately, her time in Moab does not go well. Here's what it says in verse 3. Elimelech, her husband, died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One, woman, one married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. So Naomi's life falls apart in Moab. She is destitute in a foreign land. And I, I've reminded you of this before, but it's important to pay attention to. Widows in the ancient world were very, very vulnerable. And so she makes a pretty reasonable choice. She's heard that things have kind of turned around in Bethlehem, and she decides that she is going to head back home, head back to Bethlehem. And so she tells her two Moabite daughters-in-law, uh, hey, I'm leaving. You guys go back to your families. Uh, let that, let's make that uh, easy choice for you. Go and, and let them take care of you. Because remember, they are also both now vulnerable widows. So here's what she says. Here's what she says in uh, verse 11. Why should you go on with me? Like, don't come back to Bethlehem with me. Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Okay, here we get our first glimpse of how Naomi feels about her plight. She says, things are bitter for me. The Lord has raised his fist against me. Now, whoa, I mean, she's not just... She's not just questioning God here. She's blaming him. She's blaming God. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the story goes on. Her daughter-in-law, Orpah, returns home, but Ruth digs in her heels, right? Orpah makes the reasonable choice. I'm going to go back to be with my family. But Ruth says, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. Here's what she says in verse 16. Ruth says this, Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. What we're seeing here in this 
in this little speech by Ruth is something that's going to become a major theme throughout the rest of the book. Ruth's steadfast loyalty, her loyalty. In fact, the loyalty of of Naomi's daughter-in-law is actually one of the primary ways that God brings about redemption in Naomi's story. So Ruth's steadfast faithfulness is a big deal, which we'll cover in future weeks. But for now, I want us to stay focused on Naomi's despair, on Naomi's despair, because today, frankly, we're not so much talking about happy endings. We're talking about what to do in the midst of the brokenness. So take a look. Here's how chapter one ends. Look at this. Look at verse, uh, verse 19. So the two of them, Naomi and Ruth, continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women ask. Now, by the way, Naomi literally in, in the Hebrew means my joy my joy. So they're saying, is it really joy? And here's what she says. Don't call me joy. Instead, call me Mara. Literally in Hebrew, Mara means bitter. Don't call me joy. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me joy when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's how chapter one ends. Don't call me joy. Call me bitter. Why is Naomi bitter? Why is she bitter? Well, because according to her, the Lord brought her home empty. The Lord caused her to suffer. The Almighty sent tragedy upon her. That's her mindset. That's how she sees things. Now, again, she's not just questioning God here. She's blaming him. You did this to me. Now, we know the rest of the story, so we can kind of breathe a little bit easy knowing that that verse 22 here is actually foreshadowing all the good stuff that's going to happen out in that barley field. And so we, we can take comfort in that. We know that the story ends with Naomi cradling her baby grandson who's going to carry on the family name and will go on to become the ancestor of a king, right? So we know that the story ends on a high note. That's how it ends. But let's stop for now and ask, what are we meant to learn from this moment in the story? What did the original author, whoever they were, what did they want us to take away? Now, at this point, it might seem that the moral of the story is that Naomi shouldn't have been bitter. God was going to take care of her. You're not supposed to be bitter at God or point the finger at God. She should have just trusted. Uh, That that might be a a natural thing to to assume, that that's what this uh, story is trying to tell us. But I don't think that that is necessarily what the author was trying to communicate. Hear me out. Yes, it does feel a little bit disconcerting to see someone in the Bible pointing their finger at God, right? It's, It's a little bit harsh to say that he caused this. But when you read the rest of the Old Testament, you realize that Naomi is actually in really good company with this mindset and this attitude. There are a lot of passages throughout the Bible, but especially in the Old Testament, where the biblical authors sound just like Naomi. For example, Psalm 13. Psalm 13, the author says, Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long are you going to look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? 
How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Right? Get up and do something, God. That's what that psalm is saying. Now, there are a lot of passages like this, a lot of them. There's a lot of fist shaking at God in the Bible. It just is. Why? In a, in a holy book, why would it be encouraging fist shaking at God? Doesn't that seem a little bit weird? Why? Well, because the ancient Israelites understood that our world is broken, right? Our world is full of tragedy. And if our God is, is all-powerful and all-loving, well, then he should be doing something about it. That's what they understood. God should be healing this brokenness. And here's what's fascinating to me. That this this uh, way of thinking, the Israelites understood that a part of their job as the, the priesthood of all humanity, a part of their job was getting God to act. They were the ones bringing prayers to God so that he would intervene in the brokenness of our world. How long, O oh Lord? Why have you made our lives bitter? How long are you going to look the other way? Do something. Do something. Now again, I get it. This posture of, of fist shaking at God, it, to our sensibilities, it feels a little irreverent at best. Maybe it feels a little sacrilegious at worst. This does not seem like appropriate behavior for believers. But in the ancient Israelite understanding, this tension, this tension between God and his people was a really core component of their faith. I mean, the name Israel even means, just literally means, struggles or wrestles with God. That is who the people are. So Naomi's words here might make us feel a little bit uncomfortable when she's blaming God, but it fits right in with the traditions of her people. Okay, so what do we do with this? For us today, modern world, what, what, what does this say to us? Well, I believe the book of Ruth is more than just a nice story. It is an invitation along with the, the Bible as a whole. It's an invitation for us to do a bit of fist shaking, to do a bit of fist shaking. When your uh, life is a disaster, when you're grieving, when your world is, is falling apart, it is okay to share your honest emotions with God, whatever those emotions are. Rage, despair, confusion, bitterness. Let it out. Let it out. Again, I know that, that maybe feels a bit inappropriate somehow, but here's why it's not. Here's why it's not. When you've hit rock bottom, right, when everything is falling apart, what's your other option? Your other option is to walk away. Your other option is to abandon God, to disown your faith and to say, I'm not even going to mess with this anymore because he hasn't done me right. That's the other option. When instead, when you are, 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 are shaking your fist at God as scripture invites us to do in your hardship, you're leaning into that relationship. Yes, there's some tension there, but it's good tension. You're leaning in. You're asking for him to move. You're asking for him to move. You're giving God an opportunity to, to respond to your hardship. You are, you're leaning into your faith. You're not abandoning it. I know that's a little counterintuitive for us, but even when God seems absent, your fist shaking, your struggle, your wrestling with God is something that can actually keep your faith alive through the valley. 
So here's our, our first takeaway from the book of Ruth and from this, this widow who calls her name bitter now. When your life falls apart, wrestle with God. Don't just walk away. When your life falls apart, wrestle with God. Don't just walk away. By staying in the room with the God who doesn't seem to care what, what, what you're going through, you're giving him an opportunity to prove you wrong. Stay in the room, wrestle, don't just walk away. Now, I get it. That's a bit of a provocative big idea, and frankly, it's probably plenty for us to chew on for this week to think about that. But I do think there's one other lesson here from chapter one that we can take into our lives today. And it's a lesson that we really can only learn by actually zooming all the way out, taking a big step back from this one particular moment and looking at the, at the story as a whole. So yes, we know that the story of Naomi has a, a happy ending. Uh, even though she's in so much tragedy, we know that God ultimately does come through for her, and she ends the story with a smile on her face. But here's what I want us to ask uh, right now. How does God do that? How does God bring about this, this redemption, this happy ending? Because in a lot of other biblical stories, even in the Old Testament, God seems to act a lot through parted seas and, and burning bushes or angelic visitors or supernatural miracles. But in the book of Ruth, there's none of that. There's none of that. In fact, at first glance, God does not really seem to play much of a role at all. He doesn't really seem to be doing a whole lot. But think about this. Think about this. Every single prayer in the book of Ruth, whether it's may, may the Lord reward you or may your, child's, may your child's name be famous. I put the whole list of prayers in the app notes if you want to look them up. But every single prayer in the book of Ruth is answered by the end of the story. So every prayer is answered. And of course, this baby at the end of the story, we know goes on to become the ancestor of King David and ultimately the ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. So if you step back far enough, it's pretty obvious that God was never not working. He was always working in this story to give this, this downtrodden, grieving widow hope. But not just that. He was working to bring healing to our entire broken world through Jesus. So if you step back, you can tell, oh, he was always working. But again, it raises the question, if it's not through, you know, thunderclaps and miracles, then how is he working? How's he doing it? Well, the answer is pretty simple. God was working through the ordinary faithfulness of his people. The ordinary faithfulness of his people. He was working through Ruth's loyalty. He was working through Boaz's generosity. God was working even through the, the laws of Israel that included some provisions for caring for the poor and vulnerable, right? There's a law uh, that says that when, when the poor are in your area, you've got to let them harvest whatever grain falls behind. And that's what we see in chapter 2. So, so even in the law, this is all pretty ordinary stuff. The law, a generous landowner, a faithful daughter-in-law, it's all pretty ordinary. It's all pretty ordinary. And yet, God is working through them nonetheless. He's enacting a plan of salvation that goes far beyond anything that Naomi could possibly comprehend. He was working. Okay, so what do we do with this in our lives? 
I mean, these two ideas, trusting that God is working and blaming him for our pain, these seem to be kind of contradictory ideas, don't they? Well, they seem that way because they are that way. They are a contradiction. This is what it means to be the people who wrestle with God in a still broken world. Yes, we rejoice in our salvation while we wait for God to complete it. Yes, we, we grieve with the, the broken places of our world, but we trust that God is healing them. This is the tension. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Please, please let your kingdom come. We are still Israel. We're the people who wrestle with God. But here's the thing. We are also the church. And because of Jesus, we know the end of the story. We know that through the everyday, ordinary faithfulness of his people, God is working to heal this world. And our world's destiny is new creation. So here's the takeaway. When you're facing hardship, when you're, you're facing injustice or pain or grief, when it seems like God doesn't care about you at all, then follow in the footsteps of our spiritual ancestors. Do what the book of Ruth is teaching us. Shake your fist at God. Do it. Lean into that relationship. Don't just walk away. But as you do, as you do, be confident that he is working, even if you can't see it. He is working, not through pillars of fire in the sky, but through his people. Even now, even now, he is working to weave a grand narrative of redemption straight through the rubble of your life. You may not see it. Even Naomi, at the end of the story, she didn't even see the, the bigger picture. She didn't even know what her grandbaby was going to go on to do. You may not see God working. You may not see the big picture, but you can trust that he is. That psalm I mentioned earlier, oh, oh, you know, the one, oh Lord, how, how long will you forget me forever? It strikes exactly this balance. Because yes, the psalmist is wrestling with God. He's shaking his fist at God. How long, oh Lord? But just a few verses later, here's how he ends that song. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice for you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. Trust in the future, remembering the past, and wrestling in the present. This is what true faith looks like. So at the end of chapter one, Naomi has every right to be bitter. Her life truly is a tragedy. By the end of the book, she's rejoicing with a baby in her arms. How wonderful that in a broken world like ours, we serve a God who is not done writing our story. Let's pray. Well, Father, I know that even as I say all of this, it, it can be, it can feel a little weird to, to imagine shaking our fist at you when things are not going well. It feels like we're supposed to just sit back and be quiet, but God, I really don't believe that's what your, your word is inviting us to do.
And so for, for everyone who's, who's hearing my voice, especially those going through deep hardship, I pray that you would give them permission to let their true emotions out. I pray that they would lean into the relationship that they have with you, even if it looks like wrestling. But God, even as they're doing that, as they're wrestling, I pray that you would, in a, in a powerful way, you would remind them of the fact that you are working. It may not be spectacular. It may feel ordinary, but you have not left them alone for even one minute. As they wrestle, give them that faith because we trust in your son, Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.